You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. It is a bit strange because I'm alone today. Wow, what a weird feeling. Usually Dan would be here with me, but he has some problems with his internet connection, some problems that could not be rectified spontaneously. And thus, we agreed that I should try and just do this episode on my own. It is special anyway, because I've been at Gamescom throughout this week, and I've collected a whole lot of impressions and interviews and thoughts that I would like to share And so that's going to be the theme that will carry us through this show. Gamescom is, of course, the biggest video game trade show in the world if you just go by attendees. So just for those that live in different places in the world, to get a sense of the scope, you can think of such things like, you know, BlizzCon and these more like specially focused trade shows. Um, I found for BlizzCon that they had in 2021, I think, an attendance number of 40,000 people. Then there are these trade shows that are much bigger than that and that have a very strong impact on video game culture and the industry. And those would be, of course, things like E3 or PAX. And for those I found before COVID, attendance numbers of around 70,000 people. So that's already quite a bit bigger. And then there are these huge trade shows. Tokyo Game Show is one of these that is like super big with 270,000 attendees. But then Gamescom comes in and Gamescom before COVID had up to 370,000 attendees. So you have to imagine this is like a PAX multiplied several times all crammed into one week. I don't know what the exact numbers will be for this year because they're not in yet. As the time of recording, this is Saturday, August 27th, Gamescom is still running, right? It runs until Sunday, so the numbers are still going up. And unfortunately, the same thing might be true for the number of COVID cases in Germany. It is, to me, really frustrating, if I can be very honest, because I've had COVID recently and it has had quite an impact on my life and it left me with some consequences that I need to deal with for the rest of my life. Without going into any detail, I can say that it has heightened my already pre-existing awareness of the importance of wearing masks. And at Gamescom, way too few people actually wore masks. It really frustrated me to look down the, the aisle of having, you know, tens of thousands of people squishing through there without anyone wearing masks. Well, I shouldn't say anyone, because some people definitely did, but most did not. And that's really not cool. So please, for the love of everything that is holy, if you go to such a trade show, wear a mask. It will not only protect you from COVID, but there's also this phenomenon that is very well known amongst everyone who goes to Gamescom regularly, which is the Gamescom flu. Because so many people coming together for several days in a row, 
that will just mean that a lot of infections will spread, whether it's COVID or any kind of other annoying infection that you don't want. Wearing a mask is a relatively minor nuisance to take in comparison to coming home and being sick for a week. Well, because Gamescom is so big, I, of course, was not able to see everything. I saw a lot, but not everything. And today I'm going to bring some of the most important, some of the most impactful impressions that I was able to collect throughout this last week. Some of these topics are video game impressions. Others are more high-level discussions of video game culture with interview partners. And unfortunately, our hoster does not allow us to place chapter markers. I don't know why. I don't know what's so hard about that, but it's not possible. We can't do that. So what I will do is I will put time codes in the show notes. So if ever you find yourself thinking, well, this particular subject is not super interesting to me, you can just open the show notes and you can skip ahead to the next time code. Before I get started, though, I want to remind you, as always, that if you like this show and you want to help us make it happen, then you can support us by joining Studying Pixels Plus. There you will find all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You'll get a lovely sticker with our mascot Pixel Coon on it and monthly plus episodes. Some of them are deep dives into video game culture and others are explorations of things that can help you study. If you're curious about that, then go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's get started with one of my personal highlights. And it's a very personal one because, indeed, I'm not sure how many of you will share this impression. But in recent weeks, I've started reading One Piece, the manga in Japanese. And that's why I was, of course, super happy that One Piece Odyssey was at Gamescom. This is a JRPG that's set in the world of One Piece. And you play as Luffy, the protagonist and are basically surrounded with the entire main cast. It's an entire party, really, that ventures throughout the world of One Piece. I found it so cool to see the art style of the manga and the anime being beautifully captured in that video game. It's very true to form, and this, of course, also includes, I have to say that, the profound sexualization of female characters. One Piece is famous for that, it's infamous for that, and it's also part of the game. So if you are sensitive about this, 
then One Piece is something that you are not going to enjoy because it's all over the place. I find it a bit overdone myself. I find it a bit annoying, but luckily the game itself is good enough to stand on its own feet. I was able to play a small section where you have to rescue Nami, who is threatened to be eaten by a gorilla, really. (laughs) So you run through a relatively linear level, which presumably later on will be more of an open world thing. But in this case, I only played a short section where I ran through a linear area. And you're confronted with turn-based combat. The combat system I found fairly accessible. It was uh, simple. It was very much inspired by games like Dragon Quest. So you have all the time in the world to take your turn. You've got a simple system to determine which attacks against are strong against which kind of enemy types. And they even have an interesting idea that they added to it, and that's combat zones. So when you are dropped into the combat areas then depending on the context, your party might end up in different zones and they have to defeat certain enemies first before then coming together and attacking other enemies that are further away from them. This creates some interesting challenges because you need to strategically reason about which enemies you're going to take out when and how fast you're going to do so in order to unite your party, basically, to bring your party together to fend off a stronger foe. Now, I did find it a bit annoying that whenever any kind of combat ended and I got experience points. I had to click the X button a thousand times in order to get back into the game because you have to just click through so many different pop-ups of here's your experience and here's your money and here your items and so on. I think that's a little bit... that It could could work faster nowadays. It doesn't have to be that obtuse in 2022, but that's a relatively minor nuisance to accept. I'm really looking forward to One Piece Odyssey. It's developed by ILCA. Maybe I should have said that up top, and they do have some experiences. They worked, for example, on Dragon Quest XI and on Code Vein, so they are a highly renowned studio when it comes to JRPGs. The game's going to release on PS4, PS5, Xbox One, and the Xbox Series consoles, as well as on PC this year. The next title I saw was actually a surprise because it was only announced to me as a game about climate change. Because, you know, you make appointments with publishers and developments before Gamescom in order to have time slots where you can then talk to the devs and get a proper presentation on the game. And they didn't want to share much. They said it's not announced yet. It's just a game about climate change. And I said, of course, I want to do that. Of course, I want to see that. And it turns out that this is a survival city builder by the Polish studio Vile Monarch. And the setting is that the climate crisis has happened. It's not just in progress, but it's basically a post-apocalyptic world. The world is entirely flooded. Civilization is completely crushed. And it's time to slowly build up a small community from the few remaining survivors. And you then need to go ahead and gather resources such as plants and fish and water, but of course also stuff like rubbish. I was really surprised when I saw rubbish as a key resource, and it turns out that you need rubbish for pretty much everything, because of course such a 
so a group of survivors, such a small civilization, would have to live on whatever the former civilization has left behind. Survival here is really a key element because it is not so much about rapidly expanding as you would see it in a game like Age of Empires or Civilization, but it's about managing your resources and allocating the limited resources that you have. Part of the team, for example, worked on this war of mine beforehand at 11-Bit Studios. This should indicate to you already that uh, they require a lot of careful decision-making when it comes to allocating limited resources. Now, it's not as dire as this war of mine. The tone of the game is not as dire. But still, the setting is a very serious one. And at the same time, they do have a vast tree of unlockables and, uh, you know, a tech tree that you can develop just like in any other strategy game. The most important premise, though, is that this is all about climate change. It's a really hot topic, of course, at the moment in our society. And that's why I did an interview with Kasper Kwiatowski, who is the co-boss and creative advisor at Vile Monarch. And I asked him how he would explain the key premise of Floodland. All right, so Floodland is uh, what we call a post-catastrophic survival society builder, because it is a city builder, uh, a survival city builder, but with a huge emphasis on society. Um, And by that we mean, like, actually today's society, today's social uh, problems, just shown through the lens of a of a fictional future uh, major catastrophe. And that catastrophe would obviously be the drastic impact of climate change as we can anticipate it happening right now, right? Yes, exactly. We were researching the most believable catastrophe that might happen, and it turns out it's not the asteroid or, or volcanoes. It's, well, it's the climate change. And it's not just because it gets warmer. That's a problem in itself. But it might lead to um, a chain of, of catastrophes that we are actually starting to notice. Like, if the... If it's too hot, it's harder to grow food. If uh, it's harder to grow food, people are starving. If they are starving, they might be desperate. If they are desperate, they might fight. So hopefully, the scenario that we're painting won't happen. It's like what we try to say, uh, that it's the worst kind of scenario that might happen. Like humanity cut down to like 10% or or even less. And uh, well, we're... At the back of our heads, we're rather optimistic. We just want to warn uh, the audience about the worst possibilities. It definitely has that kind of impact because you see at the start of the game that humanity is completely in shambles. There's no such thing as a civilization as we know it right now. And it's about kind of rebuilding and bringing people back together, right? Yes, exactly. So in our game, the catastrophe basically sent uh, people back to uh, like the prehistoric ages, like before agriculture, before cities. The remnants of humanity are mostly nomadic tribes, like 
we used to be. They are hunting, they are gathering, they are mostly sticking in small groups and they uh, don't trust um, other people. So what we do in the game is kind of like recreating how real civilization uh, um, has developed over ages. It's just compressed in a shorter time. When we start the game, it's like an, a, the brink of uh, the agri agricultural uh, revolution. Strategy games are often about expansion and developing technology, so ultimately bringing about the disastrous events that would then lead to climate change. How do you bring together this idea of a sustainable life on the one hand, and this kind of idea of expansion and development that we have in a game like Floodland as well. There are a number of things that might happen in the game where you have to, you, you get to choose between being more sustainable or more like exploitative. I won't get into details because it's kind of a spoiler territory, but uh, like, let's say that some resources may be uh, obtained in uh, in many different ways and yeah. in some cases you can be more exploitative and get more faster but it's not necessarily a long term scenario but there are ways to get less over a um, longer period of time and we leave it up to the player maybe you need a mix a little bit of both worlds or maybe you want to go entirely one way but the thing is the people that you lead they have their own opinions so even if a given way is efficient people might be well worried because they remember the past or at least heard about the past and they don't want you to make the same mistake and it's not that uh, every time you're gonna say you're gonna hear a judgment from the game, it's uh, far from what we want to do. Um, people have different opinions, and so some might be like that, some might be uh, the the opposite. It's the people in the game that judge you, not the game itself. The game itself does not judge in game, but it is a cautionary tale, right? It is a dystopia that shows us like this is what things are going to come to if we don't make drastic changes to prevent further escalation of the climate crisis. Yes, you might say that. We, we like to say that it's not necessarily a game with a message. It's a game that lets you explore different ideas and like uh, write your own message. I mean, obviously, it's not a game where your um, conclusion will be that, well, climate change is fun. It's really good for, for us. But then again, we're not saying how we should um, build society to uh, avoid climate change or ma making it more general to avoid or to deal with different crises. So uh, we're giving you tools to try out different options. It's not that if you're a, like a ruthless leader in the game, it doesn't have to reflect you, but it might be a, like your way to deal with a given co concept through a video game and to learn something about, well, perhaps more about yourself than about uh, uh, what we meant in the game. Well, but I mean, the setting as such is already such a powerful message, right? If you consider how at the moment we are in this kind of societal conflict between people who really urgently push for change in politics, and then we've got, on the other hand, a whole lot of people who would, like, you know, we've got this discourse revolving around the people who would deny that climate change is even happening. And you clearly take a stance on, on that front, don't you? 
Yes, I would agree. We don't even consider an option that the game could be understood as climate change is only a hypothesis. We know it's not. Although, well, we don't want to get into this argument with the deniers. I mean, many of these people, they are, they have different reasons to believe uh, a given version. They are not always like bad people, evil people. Um, so what we'd like to say is, well, all right, you don't believe in the climate change. That's fine. So let's assume that what we sh show in the game is like one of the possible scenarios. It's like a fictional um, extrapolation of, of what we have right now. Try it out, see it for yourself, and maybe it will lead you to read more, to um, think more, and maybe, just maybe, you're gonna find out more about it. But even if not, maybe you're left with a more general message, not about climate change, but about disagreement in humanity, about dealing with uh, critical, uh, catastrophic situations. Maybe you're afraid of the uh, asteroid, that's fine. But if the asteroid hits, what we want to say is that you're gonna deal with similar problems, similar social problems as after the climate catastrophe. Thank you so much for the conversation, Kasper. Um, I do, for a second, I felt in this interview that he would go all Ubisoft on me, as in, there's no message to the game. Uh, I'm glad that he didn't go all the way there. I actually think that Casper uh, very much has a point when he says that even for people who might not or might deny the existence of climate change, I mean, clearly you're not going to just easily change their mind by having them play a video game, right? But you could try and encourage them to engage with this game and to say, that, let's just assume that this is for real, right? It doesn't have to be exactly about climate change, but there's still something to be learned from Floodland about, you know, how humanity can engage with crises and how messed up things can get if we don't take preventive measures. If you're curious about the game, then you can go to vilemonarch.com in order to find more about it. Of course, I also wanted to check out Sonic Frontiers. It was placed in the entertainment area at Gamescom, and when I saw the stand, I knew that I have to go there because, you know, when Sonic Frontiers was announced, there was quite a bit of controversy around it, considering its art design, considering its inspirations it takes from Breath of the Wild, and just the general notion of, does this really work? Now, luckily, I was able to play it, and... The thing is that I'm a little bit ambivalent about it. So normally in Sonic games, you would run through 2D levels at like super high speed and you would barely be able to see what's going on. But in Sonic Frontiers, you are in an open world. It's basically an open world action adventure game, you could say. And as I said, it is clearly inspired by Breath of the Wild that it lets you loose into this world that is uh, abstract in its aesthetic design, but also has a kind of realistic touch to it. It might seem weird at first, and when I saw Sonic on the screen, like coming from a cutscene, waking up in this area, and then starting to explore around, it was at first a little bit strange. It felt a little bit artificial to me. 
more so than Breath of the Wild, way more, and more so than uh, Super Mario Odyssey. But after a couple of minutes of playing, it became rather natural and organic, and I didn't even notice any such disconnect anymore because I was just more focused on the movement and the way that Sonic moves through this world is fairly organically integrated. You've got just these like ridiculous platforms everywhere and these uh, these bumpers that will shoot you through the air and then you fly through rings and you gain speed and you got like a boost function so that you can be even faster. <laughs> it did work fairly well. I was actually quite curious about how the navigation would work and they made it relatively simple it's more accessible than it has been in previous sonic 3d games in that you navigate around with your little blue hedgehog and you can at the press of the button have him leap at the next enemy for example and just tackle him and you can tackle any enemy repeatedly out of the air without having to have like super precise control over Sonic. You can also evade or switch lanes when you're running along somewhere by pressing the trigger buttons. So implementing it in that way, I found it a relatively smart choice to make that made me feel like I was in control of Sonic at all times. What I am not quite sure about is there are two different modes in the game and I was only able to try out one. So at the beginning of the demo, I had to choose between action mode and high speed mode. Action mode, it said, is recommended for people that enjoy playing video games but are not necessarily familiar with Sonic. And high speed mode is recommended for people that are experienced with Sonic games. I've played my fair share of Sonic during my childhood, but I selected action mode because I didn't want to just constantly run into a wall and be super challenged within just these like 20 minutes that I had to play the game. I am not quite sure what high speed mode will feel like, whether it might feel over the top, how this sense of speed can be maintained in such a 3D open world. It is... Clunky to a certain degree, but not too clunky to be disruptive, I felt. And therefore, I think um, it is. it does have quite some potential, and I am curious about it. Mm, but I'm not quite sure yet what they are exactly striving for. Whether they really try and push for Sonic to compete with a game like Super Mario Odyssey or with Breath of the Wild, Nintendo games that are of such supreme quality... I doubt that it's going to reach that level of quality. But I'm curious to see as to where it goes. And if you are too, then you can check it out on November 8th this year, which is when it comes out. Okay, let's do one more before we dive into some more general discussions on video game culture. Because one game that was plastered all over Gamescom was Goat Simulator 3. And of course, I made an appointment to check that out. Goat Simulator developed into quite a phenomenon. It started out as a funny game jam project and it got super popular. And over time, the game was developed and expanded upon for quite a while. The key focus is that you are a goat in an open world and that you can cause all sorts of ruckus. Now, Coffee Stain Studio, they decided to expand that and to make... Goat Simulator 3, which wants to be both. It wants to be a chaos simulator 
that anyone can jump into and just cause havoc. And at the same time, they also wanted to be a more satisfying experience with actual in-game goals to achieve. Now, I can say that they definitely accomplish the first one. It is the chaos simulator that everyone knows from the first game already. The mechanics are super simple. You play as this goat and you run around and you cause havoc. Uh, you can lick things and they stick to your tongue. You can jump and activate a ragdoll feature, which just basically makes the goat entirely limp and fall on the ground and, you know, roll over and uh, lose control of all of its body movements. Everything in the world is simulated, which I found quite cool. So you can destroy everything pretty much and you can mess with all sorts of things. It always has this kind of curious impact that when you go through the world that you think, hmm, I wonder what kind of silly thing I can do with that or how far I can push things. For example, uh, the CEO at Coffee Stain North, Sebastian Eriksson, he was sitting next to me and we were having a conversation while I was playing and uh, he guided me to this part where you can plant a bean in the ground and then you have to water it and then you can make it grow. You can make it grow into a gigantic plant and you can make it grow bigger and bigger and bigger and you can even stand on the plant and just basically make it your platform to look all over the world. These plants you can then put anywhere in the world where you want. Now, they are not persistent, he told me. They will disappear when you turn off the game and turn it back on. But it's just as an example of to the extent to which you can go to manipulate this game world. Of course, there's also a wide selection of unlockables that I saw. I saw that you can, of course, play as a giraffe, which is also on the poster. Um, you could drive a whole lot of vehicles. I remember that uh, Sebastian Eriksson, he guided me to a bicycle, which was standing there. And he already said, like, the bicycle is one of the hardest vehicles in the game to control. Now, I kept falling over on that thing, and he just chuckled, <laughs> sitting next to me. And it immediately created this kind of silliness that you would expect from a game titled Goat Simulator 3. One of the aspects, though, that does really impact the game world significantly, and that are persistent, is that... I found three ballerinas on a stage and I was able to headbutt them as a goat, right, to make them spin faster. And as soon as you have all three ballerinas spinning at full speed, a tornado emerges, of course. And that tornado wreaks havoc upon the world. It just keeps moving across the map. And whatever you are doing, it might be that you're trying to complete a small little task in the area that you are, and then you're suddenly just picked up by this tornado and thrown completely elsewhere. Right? So this is all part of the joy of the a certain sense of unpredictability. One thing that they really wanted to focus on for the demonstration was that there is now, for the first time, a multiplayer mode. The multiplayer mode uh, works in a very simple fashion. You can just join uh, the game of a friend, so you don't play a together with random people, but you, you play with your friend group and you can cause chaos in their world and you can disrupt uh, their playing experience, right? But all in a funny manner. There are, for example, competitive mini-games that you can start at any given point. For example, it's like you can start a little game of uh, soccer, right? Where you can just run around and headbutt a ball and try to get it into your own goal. 
But these goals are summoned into the world. So the simulation does not stop. The minigame does not have like a distinct area in which it takes place. It's not like a Mario Party minigame. But the minigame takes place in the world and everything that's part of that world can also be employed in the game. You can, for example, just steal a vehicle and run into the ball or run over your friends or the goats, the avatars of your friends and uh, just have fun, really. That's the whole premise. And one thing that struck me is that when I was on my way to this appointment, I stood in line because I had to give in my luggage. And there were two people behind me looking at the poster of Goat Simulator 3 and they said, they can't believe that they actually made three of these games. And I thought, wait, they actually didn't make three games, did they? Because there is only the first Goat Simulator and then they directly went ahead and made the third one, didn't they? So that's exactly the question that I asked Sebastian Eriksson, the CEO, at Coffee Stain North. Oh, that might, might be correct. <laughs> so you're basically making a trilogy with two games. Yeah, yes, I guess. Like, actually, we always dreamed of doing a trilogy, but uh, so we kind of took a shortcut. <laughs> uh, what do you think is the core appeal of a game like Gold Simulator? Why was it able to become the phenomenon that it is nowadays? I mean, every player probably has their own answer to that, but, but in... From my perspective, like what we try to do is like we try to give the, the player like all of the power, basically. So uh, I think that some people might assume that we like go out there trying to make a buggy game, but bugs are just like part of the course, basically, when trying to give the player as much power as possible. Because if by doing that and not limiting the player, there will be bugs. But uh, our design philosophy is like usually that it's more important that you can do whatever you want in this sandbox world than it being like the perfect experience and some of the bugs are like uh, most of the bugs that we that we have to keep in or that we choose to keep in are also funny and works in the context of the game so um, it's a good match so you would have the situation that you would play test and you would see that something glitches in a weird way or behaves in an unexpected way accelerates unreasonably or something and then you just say let's leave that in because it's funny uh, yeah, yeah, but that definitely happens a lot of the times. Like we're trying to achieve one thing, and uh, the result is something else, and we just like pivot. Uh, sometimes the bugs become features. Sometimes the features become funny bugs. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's both ways actually. But there is a, a fine line to walk, right? Because there are also just bugs that are game breaking or that would really disrupt the enjoyment of the player and those are the ones that you would then go ahead and fix yeah yeah definitely i mean that that is uh, uh, even the ones that do not break the game uh, some of them of course we don't want still to, to keep in the game so we do our best to uh, squash as many bugs as possible the ones that uh, interrupt the gameplay the ones that uh, hinder you from having fun and of course, the game, like the, the, the crash box, we can't keep. Uh, we did that with the original game because we were only on Steam. And it, like, being only on Steam is kind of okay to crash once in a while. So we, we actually even had like, things in the game that would eventually crash the game. But it was like uh, a button saying, do not press this. And if you did, then like, it kind of crashed. But that was, uh, that was like, also the player that did it. We kind of told you not to do it. So... We thought that was funny, but this time around, we can't really do that. So we're on consoles now and on more platforms, so uh, we can't have that much fun. So then you would have, like, Sony quality assurance. They would say, hey, this and that just doesn't fly on our platform. Exactly. What do you think is the, the appeal of this, of this glitchiness, of this bugginess? Because it's, it is on the 
on the one hand, it is clearly there. It is very much up in your face as soon as you start a game like Goat Simulator 3. On the other hand, though, Goat Simulator 3 seems, at least from the short section that I've played now, it is, it is a polished game. Like, it's not a broken game. It's not a cheap game in that sense, if you know what I mean. No. no that, and that's kind of why we uh, made this sequel to begin with. That uh, The first game um, was built in just a couple of months. It was a Game Jam game, and the foundation was really shaky. And we built upon that for several years. And uh, after a while, we were like, okay, all the things that we wanted to do, we couldn't really on, on, on that platform. So uh, that's why we decided that, okay, we're going to build the game from the ground up uh, and make it as stable as possible, like the foundation of the game, like the code base, uh, so that we can bring in multiplayer, so that we can have a huge world, so we can have more interactions and more physics and, and whatnot uh, without the game totally breaking uh, and also like being able to be on the console platforms doing that. So um, yeah, that was actually part of why we made the sequel. What would be such a thing, such a feature or an aspect of Goat Simulator 3 that would not have been possible to realize beforehand? Um, so, so, I mean, the multiplayer is one of them. Like, making a multiplayer game is uh, such a different beast. And especially with the kind of game that we are making, where physics is, like, the main point of the game. Like, in, in, you can see, like, in a lot of modern games, of course, there is physics and you will, like, you can bump into stuff and it will move, like, there's, like, books flying or whatever, but it's not important to the gameplay, it's just visually, so that it's never synchronized, uh, or, or most of the time not synchronized between players, because it's not important, and that takes a lot of computing. So, but with this game, it's the most important part, so everything has to be synchronized at all times, so if uh, you disrupt something in the one part of the world, and another goat comes there, it needs to be the same, right? So that has been a real challenge, with all of the issues that can come up with this, and the chaos that uh, you can create, and all of the power that we give to the player. It's been... Uh, a huge challenge. So we put a lot of work into this. Yeah. Well, thank you for the interview, Sebastian. And I know that this is, of course, a fine line to walk between, on the one hand, being a glitch game that must live up to the expectations of players, that it should be glitchy and it should be buggy and give you all sorts of freedom that other games might not be willing to give you. But on the other hand, also having to live up to the strict QA regulations of console publishers. I'm very curious to see how that will turn out eventually. I'm fairly confident that they will pull it off just from these, let's say, 40 minutes that I've played of Goat Simulator 3, which is going to come out on 17th of November this year. Now let's take a short break here. And when we're back, we're going to talk about two important buzzwords within video game culture at the moment. The first one is the blockchain, and the second one, the metaverse. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we are back talking about blockchaining and the metaverse. These are two terms that you might have an aversion towards. At least I do, because they are kind of hard to grasp. And they have this implication of, that's not going to be good <laughs> when that happens. But it is going to happen whether we like it or not. So we better get educated about what it actually means. So let me just say up front that a blockchain is basically a way to organize information. Instead of storing everything centrally, it stores information in a chain of blocks. And these blocks are persistent and they can be edited or modified over time. They allow, for example, that you can have ownership over a digital block, where it then says, this block belongs to Stefan Heinrich Simond, such as an NFT, for example. The metaverse, on the other hand, that's a much different thing. You might remember something like PlayStation Home. I loved that back in the day of the PlayStation 3, I think, where you could create your avatar and then you would have a virtual environment in which you could chat with friends. It was like mostly a social application, but you could also, you know, dress up and you could play a bowling mini game and chat in the meantime it was kind of like a recreational meeting space. It doesn't exist anymore, but it is kind of like an application that predicates the idea of the metaverse. So a digital space that encapsulates all kinds of activities, such as games, watching films, socialize, and sometimes even work, right? Depending on how far you want to take it for work meetings or using work applications in virtual reality within such a framework. It's really interesting, actually, the extent to which you could push the idea of the metaverse. It is also diligently developed at the moment. There's a good reason for why Facebook has rebranded itself, called itself meta, because that's exactly the direction that they're striving to go into. Now, meta is a good keyword because... I met a researcher at the Gamescom Congress who says that the primary competition when it comes to digital entertainment of the coming years is going to happen between games and social media. His name is Carol Severin, and he did a talk at the Gamescom Congress which was titled 
the cultural role of games in the 2020s. And his key idea was that consumers are super busy these days. There's not that much free time that people can allocate to new forms of entertainment, right? They're already bound by so many different things. And it's really hard to kind of wrestle for that time. Now, what happens is that games, they are striving for what social media does well in order to engage consumers more. That is, including social features, including means of self-expression, and to collaborate and to co-create with other people. Whereas on the other hand, social media strives for what games do really well, which is the possibility to engage in a fully realized digital or virtual environment. And that is why Carol Severin, he's a senior analyst at Media Research, says the competition and ultimately merging of games and social media is what will reshape the digital entertainment as we know it. And I, of course, asked him for an interview. And the first question I brought up is, what do games and social media have in common? The reason for it is that, that games and social media are both interactive in nature. That's the biggest difference that they've got compared to things like video, ga uh, video music, and sports. Um, and this interactive nature gives them an opportunity to start bringing all of these other entertainment formats like video or music and create new experiences that are interactive on their platforms, right? So you can start creating uh, experiences inside games that music or video couldn't have done alone. That new value can be shared between the games industry and the other entertainment industries. Yeah, because social media is doing something very similar, right? TikTok is bringing together its social components with video content that would probably not work in any other video format. Like, you can't produce, uh, like, these clips for the cinema, for example. They're specifically catering for social media. Is that, like, a, the key similarity between those two fields? Well, I, I guess that the key similarity is in the interactive nature. But the, the key difference, on the other hand, is that, you know, social media is much more multitasking-friendly than games. Games are quite focus heavy. They demand a lot of focus. They demand your ears, your eyes, your hands. For social media, it may actually be slightly easier in a way or smoother to actually grow things like time spent in, in the time where consumers are increasingly running out of their free time. And they need to start essentially piling all of these propositions on top of each other. It's easier to do that with social media than with playing a game. First of all, you said that uh, consumers are running out of their time. What do you mean by that? Between all the content and consumption propositions that are out there, if you think about it, like we've, we've actually modeled out some, some numbers uh, for, for this quarter. And if, you've got a, you know, if a week has got 168 hours, you basically, once you cut down things like sleep and work and study and you know, what you actually spend on entertainment, you end up with about 17 hours per week of free time. But we haven't counted things like showering, getting dressed, eating three times a day. Yeah, and consumers are increasingly do tapping into that time, right? It's much more common nowadays for you to have breakfast. And while you are literally eating, you are consuming content, right? So I'm having breakfast and I'm scrolling through Twitter at the same time. And would you say that games are kind of trying to tap 
into that time space as well? Because you said they're so interactive that it's hard to combine those yeah. two things, right? It'll be really hard for the games to tap into the multitasking-friendly opportunity, but what games can do is double down on their real strength, which is the 3D interface they've got against social media, right? In a 3D interface, you can create culturally relevant moments that, are, that, that have the potential to create a much stronger bond with the consumer, than essentially in a 2D interface, right? You can see how, what, what everyone is doing. You can really experience with each one avatar at that in-game concert what they're doing versus if you're you know, watching a 2D video stream, all you are seeing is hearts and thumbs-ups flooding the screen, right? So, uh, yeah, from, 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 from that perspective, absolutely. So you would say that what we're really seeing is video games such as Fortnite organizing whole concerts within their video game world, that is the kind of future that we're looking at here? Absolutely. I think the biggest growth opportunity for games in terms of their time spent uh, and growing further cultural relevance is actually inviting the other parts of culture into the games world and helping them uh, offer things to consumers that just weren't possible before. They weren't possible before, but they also changed things, right? They changed things for the content that is integrated, but they also changed things for the games that they take place in. So maybe looking at the games that they take place in first, I wonder, what does that mean for how games might change within the next 10 to 20 years to accommodate such integration of other content? The first real important step is that games companies really need to start focusing on understanding their users beyond the game. Thus far, games companies have done a great job at understanding exactly what the users are doing inside the game. They don't know a whole lot about who these consumers are outside of the game, where they are, what makes them tick, right? Those are the kind of things that games companies will need to understand and monitor uh, in order to be able to know what are the you know, most lucrative propositions they can bring into the market. What is going to happen to this huge strand of games that are still out there that rely primarily on delivering narratively focused experiences that do not lend themselves to uh, multitasking much or to the integration of other media, story-heavy games? Where do you see them going? Oh, I think they are, you know, uh, fine and well. They will, still, they will still be there. No transition ever happens to the whole games industry. Right? So these will still be there and could very much be successful at what they're doing. But it is not the part of the industry where that's going to sort of push forward the growth of cultural relevance for games. What's going to push it forward is more of these sort of games worlds that can become more and more inclusive. And by nature, they can then it means that they can cater to a wider audience, right? If you've got one particular story, one particular niche, it's quite hard to sort of be able to get out of there, right? But once you invite people into a multiplayer environment where they can socialize, etc., suddenly it becomes a community on its, on its own there. Um, it becomes a metaverse, doesn't it? Well, I mean, I, I like to talk about these things more as platforms, really. Like, metaverse, I, I, I know everybody loves the word these days, but I am of the opinion that metaverse is really nothing sort of new. To me, what the metaverse is, is really simply a transition from a 2D interface to a 3D interface. Facebook, in its meaning, is a metaverse. 
Apple iPhone, in its meaning, is a metaverse, right? Uh, so yes, there are these new places, but really they are platforms. All they are are consumption platforms, right? Some have a 2D interface, and games are now bringing in the 3D interface, which is where the opportunity is. And by the way, when we were talking about you know, social media uh, going into uh, sort of multitasking, et cetera, and, and being strong there, games are strong on the interface part. Social media know that. This is why Meta is racing to make sure that their 3D transition happens, right? With the likes of VR, whatever, et cetera, and just generally pitching the metaverse, right? But really, all they are doing is self-disrupting themselves to make that jump from 2D to 3D, just like they've already disrupted themselves once when they jumped from desktop to mobile. Facebook is very good at knowing when and how to disrupt itself. Um, so, you know, TBC, but they certainly have... That there is a sort of time limit on, on this opportunity. They need to get it done fast because all of these games, they have already mastered the 3D interfaces. The games all have them, right? So the games are trying to bring in the so socializing aspects and the self-expression and the cross-entertainment and the social media are racing on the other side, right? Trying to make sure that they get to the interface. So both sides have are kind of parked their tanks on the lawns of this opportunity and they are each approaching it from a slightly different angle. That was Carol Severin, Senior Analyst at Media Research. Of course, you can find more information on MediaResearch.com. Now, there's a second part to this segment, and it's about blockchain, because one of the crucial aspects that is very attractive about this metaverse is that if you create such a digital environment and you base it on blockchain technology that you can render information persistent. So you could, for example, create an avatar and you could use that avatar in all kinds of games as long as they're part of the same metaverse, right? And of course, though, blockchains and NFTs are, as I've said already, they are controversial topics, right, within the game industry. That's at least what Michelle Kang told me. She works for Nervous Network, which is an international blockchain company. They want to see whether they can expand their blockchain business into video games. And I was just out at Gamescom at, in the yard and I was, uh, you know, having a, taken a break, and I met Michelle Kang there, and she told me that she went round to several different video game publishers and developers, but as soon as she started talking about blockchain, they were uh, rather cautious about engaging with this subject and not particularly interested. So I asked her, how do blockchains change the nature of things such as microtransactions? What is the difference between purchasing V-Bucks or purchasing a cosmetic item in a game that already exists on the one hand and a blockchain purchase on the other hand. Okay, so once you bought some sort of like items or things that belong to the game, it's actually belong to the gaming company because the data or the item is belong to under the gaming company's data system, while meanwhile in blockchain it's more decentralized as I mentioned that it's actually it's written in the smart contract which can, can be um, changed or so you actually hold that block, hold that item, hold the data. 
So you can do whatever you want. It's written and it can't be transferred to other people unless you want it. Wouldn't that mean that blockchaining basically brings an aspect back into games that we've had for a long time? Because when I grew up, games were always analog, right? You, can, you could purchase a video game and you could sell it on. Now, in a digital age, it's often the case that you have subscriptions, you've got live service games where you only own a license to play a game, but you don't have any property yeah. within that game. Yeah. So blockchain brings this idea back of players having uh, a share, a stake in that game. Yes, yes, yes. That's one of the ideas too. That's why NFT was being popular, that people do demand to have something that they like and they want to hold it for the license-wise. So that's one thing that very attracting a lot of um, holders for the games or the NFT. Let me first ask, is that the same thing? Are NFTs basically operating on blockchain? Are we using the terms synonymously here? So NFTs... Um, so in a very easy way possible. So when you have your photo, right? And you it's not digitalized saying that you own that like photo or any asset that online or like art or etc. But NFT is a smart contract. So it means token that it belongs to your address means that it's owned by you. So it's a copyright sort of thing that when you think about it. And how is that different from blockchain? So blockchain is a network. So when easily when you think about it, it's like an Android. So you have application on Android and you play like this mobile game and you don't want anything out of it. But blockchain enable you to actually hold blocks, which could be NFT, it could be a share of the uh, game or some part of game that you like to have. So that's the differences. So NFTs. Mint, we call it Mint, on blockchain. A blockchain is the overall operating network and an NFT can be one such block in the chain. Yes, yes, yes. There are many people that are concerned about the fact that if I introduce the logic of NFTs in a game, if I say you open a treasure chest, you find a hat and that hat now belongs to you and you can sell it on, it has a real value, that kind of brings a logic of capitalism into everything revolving around that game because instead of being in a space where you play and relax and unwind, you're still in an economic space, you know, where some people might want to escape from. Do you see that as a problem? Oh, uh, yeah, I can see that as a problem. So so I think, um, again, it's the differences between blockchain game and NFT, right? NFT could be um, selling and buying buy the demands, right? If the item is popular, I think that's happening in any PC games already. But you don't really have like a going through like a weird marketplaces that you don't know actually this item could come to you unless there is a payment system locked up, right? So so that's sort of NFT, but like in blockchain gaming is again different. So I see a lot of trends that in blockchain that you don't need to actually have tokens. You don't need to actually going for making money out of it. Just enjoy playing on blockchain because there is could be more decentralized and there are a lot of uh, APIs that integrated to Web3. So you can log in with password and email address without knowing that you're playing blockchain gaming. So... I think next movement in blockchain is not only about the financial asset or like aspect, 
about just enjoying playing game could be possible in, in blockchain as well. So you think there might be a value of implementing the system of blockchains and games even beyond the financial aspect of NFTs? Yes, yes, yes. I believe that because it could be um, high, higher TPS and it could be easy to set up the game and easy to actually play it with the current like movement and development of the technology. Do you mean something like, for example, if I create an avatar yeah. in a game, then I might be able to use that very avatar in a different game? Is that the kind of consistency that you would see as an advantage? Yes, that's as well. So within the same, um, so metaverse is a pretty trendy thing in the world, right? So for example, within there are many networks, blockchain networks out there. Is but if this game is being used for within like few games or few places that built on the same network, or the network and the other network has a bridges that you can move toward. So that it's totally possible to have the different games where you can use one avatar to go ahead and etc. Because you're going to use one wallet address. Uh, so the metaverse is obviously now the third aspect that comes into play because a metaverse would not really be possible without a blockchain. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah of course. Of course, metaverse is possible beside blockchain but I think as you mentioned there is like a you have your unique avatar unique uhness and it's decentralized world so the idea of metaverse and the blockchain combine it very well and that's why there is movement together going forward that what would you say to people who just are concerned about this this NFT trend that we've seen being a bubble a fat that eventually will burst and that will leave a lot of people that, that purchase their way into games, for example, that hold ownership in certain NFTs just to lose a whole lot of money. Do you see that concern? Yeah, I saw the concern, obviously. And for my personal opinion, I saw that coming. <laughs> um, it was th just one, another way to make profit while the DeFi and blockchain was pretty popular and the ICO and all the like bubbles that happen in the industry. So I think that's why my company, for example, is trying to look for at least made games because there are a lot of uh, movement like a move to on or like play to on or learn to on sort of owning aspect of games are out there. And I'm, I'm concerned that this is only, as you mentioned, it's like a more capitalized, like people wants to play it to make money isn't really sustainable for a long time. So that's why we're, our company is looking for a, a game that everyone can enjoy playing it without knowing that they're playing blockchain gaming, right? So, um, yeah, I see the concern and cause because there are some people trying to make it hype to make profit, money, because there were, was no use cases of NFT. That's why there were bubbles. Even though you hold an NFT, there is nowhere to use it. That's why it was hyped and there is no extra value in it and it went down. So um, it's our cons our like next goal to actually bring the use cases of NFT that could be gaming. We need to, before even worrying about things like giving people financial ownership over virtual currencies or over NFTs, the most important part would be to show to people that blockchains, NFTs, and ultimately the metaverse can have 
a positive effect on the enjoyment of video games, that it brings to players what they want, which is enjoying to play a game without worrying about, okay, what am I going to purchase? How can I sell it on? And so on and so forth. Yes, yes. So, for example, once you buy the NFT, it could be an avatar, and you can play this avatar into different games and grow into an, another level. That's how the gamers are looking for. They want to grow their character or their avatar into a bigger level. So I think those are movement, the next one that are coming, for example. Thank you so much for the interview. That was Michelle Kang from Nervous Network. You can find more on nervous.org. That is N-E-R-V-O-S dot org. The key idea here seems to be that blockchains and NFTs, they do need to prove their worth. She said so herself. And that they do need to find a way to actually contribute to the enjoyment of games, to the purpose of games themselves, and not just be a quick cash grab, because as such, they will remain bubbles that ultimately will burst at some point and come down upon those that are all too eager to invest in such a thing. So we will have to see where this development goes next. I'm very cautious about these things myself. I'm not a big fan of NFTs just because of the ridiculous manifestations that we've seen. On the other hand, I can see the great potential that blockchaining holds and that uh, things like the metaverse hold. But what do you think? I'm very curious about your thoughts and maybe we can develop this conversation further in coming episodes. Next up, let's have some fun. Because there is a game that I did not expect at all. It was announced to me before Gamescom as the brand new IP of the developers of Owlboy. You might remember Owlboy, this beautiful platform adventure that came out in 2016 and that basically took the world by storm. It was tremendously successful. And now D-Path Studio are making a new game. When I saw it, though, I was quite surprised. It's called... Vikings on trampolines. Yeah, that's right. Vikings on trampolines. Where you have uh, basically Vikings that hop on trampolines. And they hop on enemies and they look cute while they do that. And you try to, you can, for example, try to bump each other off the trampolines or bump enemies of trampolines. <laughs> now I'm saying trampolines so many times, but that's the premise of the game. It's quite arcadey. It gives off these party game vibes. And you know what the developers told me when I encountered them? They said to me, one of the first things they said was, we conceptualize this as it needs to be playable with only one joystick. So they're on Nintendo Switch, right? And they gave me the controller. And the only thing that you need is the left stick to go left and right. If you go up, then it will slow your fall a little bit. And if you press down, then it will uh, accelerate your fall, right? So you will come down on the trampoline faster. <laughs> now, there are several worlds and levels that you go through. Like you don't progress from left to right or something. Don't think of this like a Mario game. It's just mostly a static screen. In some levels, the trampolines move. In others, they are stationary. There are various different challenges that they implemented. Of course, just like Owlboy, it's a very pretty game. And there's a whole lot of dedication to the pixel art, I must say. I was very impressed by that. I really liked it. 
and you select the stages like you would in a in a Super Mario World on the SNES, right? Where you click on a stage and then it gives you a challenge and then you complete that challenge. They also have a whole range of mini bosses. Or I shouldn't say mini bosses, really. They're not mini. They're proper boss fights. Think of like, it reminded me of Cuphead, where you have a small like arena in which you fight a boss in several stages. Only that they're not in this distinct 1950s Cuphead style, but in a more like retro pixel art style. For example, we played a level on a shaky boat where the waves, the waves would shake the boat and the trampolines would slide left and right. And there would be a robot shark coming out of the water. And in that shark is the boss. So you need to try and hop on the shark's head and then the boss floats out and then you need to hop on that boss. <laughs> it's super interesting and we had quite some fun playing it in multiplayer. There's a local co-op mode with up to four players. They're not planning any online mode yet. And the players basically function as trampolines for each other. So you can bump each other up and give you more altitude, right? The entire game can play can be played with four people. And there's a versus mode where you have to bump each other off the trampolines and where you get some items for superpowers, like an axe or a hammer, right, to catapult the other person off the stage. Not unlike something like Super Smash Brothers, for example. It's a peculiar game, um, a very interesting one. D-Pad Studio, they have been working on this for more or less 20 years, so this game has been around for a long time. And it was only now that they said, well, okay, now that our boy's done, now that the pandemic has hit, mm, let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can what we can make this into. Now, I know it's a bit niche, but they are ambitious and they don't want it to be perceived as kind of this um this like like a, a trashy uh, party game that you would download as a free-to-play thing on a phone. I actually had a super interesting discussion with the art director at Deepad Studio, Simon Staffsness Anderson. We didn't record it as an interview because we didn't have time to set it up for an interview. At that point, it was just a conversation, really. But he told me that it is really important for them that they maintain a certain level of pricing. Because if you go too low with the price then you're underselling your own value and you might attract people that are more cynical about the game because they say, like, it's a two euro, three euro game, you know, uh, $15, if you will, you know? And it's, it's not considered to be as fully functional or as like a fully featured video game. I see where he's coming from. It is a very psychological matter, and it is true that if you work on a game for such a long time, you don't want it to be thrown into like a, a budget section with titles like Flappy Bird, for example. I'm not, I'm not going to undermine Flappy Bird. It was a really amazing and fun thing, except for the tremendous copyright infringement that they committed. So I do get it. Nintendo does follow this idea anyway, considering that you hardly see games like Super Mario Odyssey or Mario Kart or... Zelda, Breath of the Wild, you hardly ever see them go on sale because they don't want people to have access to their game at a very low price and then be bitter about it, basically. <laughs> they kind of ask you to say, 
we're we worked on this for a long time. It's a really high value thing, and you have to commit the financial investment to engage with it. And at the same time, we're promising you that if you do that, we're going to deliver a quality that is worth that price. It's a really interesting conversation. I'm actually quite ashamed that it wasn't recorded as an interview, maybe next time around. But uh, keep an eye out for this because I didn't expect it to be as much fun as it turned out pretty much immediately. It's called Vikings on Trampolines and it's going to be released in the first quarter of 2023. Let's throw in another short one before we move into a more academic discussion again. And that would be Lies of P, which was presented at the opening night live, which in itself was a fairly nice event, I think. I'm actually glad to see that the Gamescom opening night live is turning into something that is indeed watchable <laughs> or enjoyable. Now, Lies of P, an interesting title. That is, it's a game about Pinocchio, really, but it's a dark version of the Pinocchio story. It's developed by NeoWiz Games from South Korea. And I've only got some brief impressions because I only had roughly 15 minutes to just be thrown into a chapter and just play with it. It's a peculiar combination at first because you have this grim version of Pinocchio, which is a bit gothic, a bit steampunk. And you have a gameplay and layout structure that is super influenced by Bloodborne. This is basically like if you take Bloodborne and you, you take away the Lovecraftian influence and instead you put over, you put on a mask of Pinocchio with a very long nose. Now, um, it's interesting. Now, you're, it, I can't say much about the story because I haven't experienced much of it, but the feeling and the vibe of the game is really cool. It works very well. It does seem to lack some precision. Like, when I played it, it never felt as snappy and responsive as Bloodborne. So, I'm a little bit cautious. While the art style is gorgeous, and while the premise is really promising, I wonder whether we need another Bloodborne. Do we need another game that is, well, not Bloodborne, but that's like Bloodborne, but just not quite as good. I see many copycats, and I think that's fair enough. And it does have its original ideas with this Pinocchio theme. The question is just going to be whether it's going to be interesting enough to stand on its own feet as a game and to step out of the shadow of Bloodborne. And I'm not sure whether it will be able to accomplish that. We will have to wait, and we'll talk about it on the show when it comes out in 2023. Now, I promised you one more academic topic here, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about citizen science. This is a really interesting thing. Citizen science, that means you have players help scientists sort through a vast collection of scientific data. Uh, and how this works and why it is so important, that's what I talked about with Attila Sandner. He's the CEO and co-founder of Massively Multiplayer Online Science. And he did a talk at Gamescom Congress with the title Gamers for Science, How to Change the World in Small Steps. 
He worked together with EVE Online and with Borderlands 3 to have players contribute to scientific discoveries. And the first question that I asked him is, of course, what is massively multiplayer online science? Yes, we're a small Swiss company and we are doing a very special way of citizen science. We are integrating citizen science into major AAA video games. So citizen science, as you would imagine it, this is basically the public, the general public, contributing to academic, for an academic purpose or to a research project. Is that correct? Exactly. Uh, it is actually nothing new. So it, it has been always, almost always part of the scientific process that outsiders contributed in some shape or form. Of course, with the advent of online technologies, this became much easier because it was simply easier to distribute data and images and information, and it was easier to gather results. Uh, so that al already gave a boost to these activities with projects like, um, I think the among the first one, ones, it was NASA's Click Workers, and then, uh, of course, Zooniverse, which was um, based on Galaxy Zoo, uh, made by Oxford University, which became very successful. It was the first big citizen science project. They get on this nice BBC coverage and everybody was super inspired that, yeah, we can help researchers to better understand the universe and help them classify galaxies. And it became so successful, actually, that, that they built a platform where now they host... Um, 80 or 100 different research projects in parallel. So the challenge for science is basically that they have lots and lots of data that they need to try and work through, that they need to try and classify, as you said, categorize and understand. And that's really difficult to do simply with a computer or with an algorithm. You can't just like throw, throw it at a machine and it will sort it all out. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we see that machine learning is becoming more and more advanced. Um, but still, humans have a superior pattern recognition capabilities that is our evolutionary heritage. Um, so it means that we can actually contribute to improve these algorithms and improve these machine learning uh, um, algorithms to, to, um, with our manually curated opinions on these images or data sets. So that's, that's uh, how these citizen science projects work. Now the big problem is that although people really love the idea and there's a very strong intrinsic motivation that people want to help advance science, but in reality what we ask them to do is highly repetitive. So what happens is that people visit these projects which are available online, they do a couple of classifications, contributions, and they leave and never come back. And all these citizen science projects rely on, usually on small, though very enthusiastic and very committed user base. And that's where our idea came from to, you know, we were thinking about how we could solve this problem, this problem of engagement. And I think this is most prevalently visible in the context of the COVID pandemic, where you have the situation of you have the coronavirus and you need a whole lot of analysis of data in order to figure out how the virus works. And 
yeah, you have this challenge that you need to sit people in front of computers to just simply do like image analysis, basically, to recognize patterns. And how do you get them to do that? How do you get them to stay motivated apart from just saying, hey, you're going to do something good in the world by sorting through these hundreds and thousands of images? It was lucky that we started this this whole initiative in 2015 and uh, we launched the first game together with CCP in 2016 because when coronavirus hit, we already had two successful projects running in the games, it, which means that we had all the elements of the pipeline up, running, tested. So that's when I get, uh, get an email from Berger Finboyasson, who's the creative director and with whom together we ran Project Discovery for all these years. And he was asking, Attila, is there anything that we can help with? In six weeks' time, we managed to set up a project together with McGill University, BC Cancer Vancouver, and the University of Modena and Reggio Emilia uh, to analyze data that helps researchers better understand how the immune system reacts to COVID. This was sort of a milestone project where we could show that gamers can actually act as a rapid action force in case of emergency. So from the perspective of a player, let's say I'm, I'm enjoying a good round of EVE Online, this massively multiplayer online space game. It's very dynamic, uh, highly experimental in some domains as well. What would I see on this front end of project discovery? What would I encounter? Well, it depends on the project, of course. Um, the first game that we implemented was uh, an image uh, classification minigame where you saw um, a microscopy image of human cells. You could magnify the image, and this image contains some green staining that marked a certain, the presence of a certain type of protein. And you, have to, you had to select... Uh, out of 27 possibilities, if I remember well, uh, where you see this green staining um, on, on at which subcellular location. This was a very simple game, intentionally simple, because this was like the first project, so we wanted to test whether the idea, or this whole idea works in the first place. The other project we had with, was with uh, Gearbox in Borderlands uh, 3, called Borderlands Science, that's a completely different game. It's much more, actually, it's much more of a traditional game, so it looks like a retro, 8-bit retro-style Candy Crush slash Tetris-like game, but the tiles that you are manipulating are actually DNA information. So basically, you're making it appealing in cooperation with, let's say, Gearbox now, in the case of Borderlands 3, where people can go to an in-game arcade machine and they can play this little arcade game, whether they know that they're actually contributing to science or not is, in this case, insignificant, right? Because they're just supposed to... They can do this just for, in, for the enjoyment of it, right? I think it's important if, if people know about it that they contribute to, to this very important research project because that creates an extra... Well, it's not even... It creates the foundational layer of motivation to participate in these projects. But surely there are players who don't even know that this is real data. Uh, the fun, funniest story was when we launched the, um, this game. Of course, we monitored everything to see that it goes well. And, of course, we're looking at forums, what, how, what, what, what is the player feedback. 
there was a forum thread when somebody started to talk about that this is all a, all fake science or there's no real science behind it. It's just Gearbox saying it. And it was so funny because we were sitting there together with the researchers. We knew exactly what's going on uh, in the, in backstage. So so it was, you know, it's it's a wide spectrum of, of how players perceive this project. But I think we, we make... A, like substantial efforts to to use this not only to acquire valuable data for science, but also use this opportunity to communicate about science. It's it's a really unique tool for science outreach, and we're we we have the opportunity to talk to a community which is traditionally I would say underserved by science communication. Yeah, it's definitely not a usual target audience of something like publications on exoplanets and all the other, let's say, intricate technicalities that you've just referenced. And I wonder, though, how do you make such a seemingly tedious task appealing? Because I know many games, I'm just going to name t titles like Assassin's Creed and so on, right? A lot of, a lot of games that, are, that have very repetitive elements in them. How do you manage for players not to just simply get tired of it? How do you try and keep players stay motivated? So, I mean, th th this is the magic that is added to the project by the game developers and game designers. So uh, that, that was part of the core concept in the first place, that, you know, researchers before tried great gamification. Uh, they even created standalone mobile games for citizen science. But it's simply impossible to make that kind of quality games, what we see in the AAA space. Um, these companies have decades of experience of how to create really engaging experiences for players. So we said that, you know, we don't want to design the game. We want you to design the game. You know much better your player community. You know much better the game, how, how this would fit in the, in the bigger ecosystem of your game. And that I think this this approach worked out really well. And you know, Borderlands Science is, is a perfect example. So nobody ever imagined that Borderlands 3, the mother of all looter shooters, would be a place to do a scientific minigame. And it works perfectly. That was Attila Santnara. Thank you so very much for the conversation. The CEO and co-founder of Massively Multiplayer Online Science. You can find more information on mmos.ch. And by the way, the next step that they intend to take is the development of a mobile app that integrates several different citizen science projects. Basically like mini games that you could play in an app and then get rewards in games that you already play, which would be super convenient. Obviously, A lot of this is still under development and nothing is quite yet set in stone, but it's still a super important project because there is a lot of work to be done when it comes to sorting through these huge databases and gamers can very much help in the process of doing that. They hope that they're going to be ready to have a playable prototype next month and they are planning to launch their app sometime in 2023. We're going to keep reporting on this as the app is going to be released. And that is pretty much it. I mean, I saw a whole lot of stuff at Gamescom and not everything has made it into this episode because I didn't want to blow it out of proportion completely. <laughs> I found, for example, really interesting that there was this format of the D Battle Royale, which 
always takes place at the beginning of Gamescom Congress, and it's a format where politicians of leading political parties in Germany engage in a debate on matters revolving around video game industry and video game culture. And I found it quite cool that as an opening segment, they discussed matters such as disability, accessibility, sexism, right? All of these things that are hot political issues, important topics, and that were Prem, like they were there in previous years as well, but they were not as prominently placed as they were this time around. I also found it quite cool that they had a segment halfway through the debate where they started to cooperatively play a game. That game was Dorfromantik, which is a German game, and it's about just puzzling together a small village. It's a strategy puzzler, you could say. It's quite fun and fairly relaxing, and you could tell when they started playing that game how the mood in the room instantly changed from this conventional debate setting, as you would see it on any kind of talk show, to a kind of scenario where they play together and they're chatting on the side, having a little bit more casually engaged conversations. I'm not saying that every political debate should be framed as a cooperative multiplayer game. Oh god, that would be terrible. And nobody would want to see that, including myself. But throwing such a, an element into the debate that breaks up the flow of the dynamic and changes it, I found that a super interesting idea and it worked out very well. I'm also really happy that I had the time to drop by the Japan Pavilion. You know already that I'm learning Japanese and I was able to employ it a little bit in a real-life scenario at that pavilion. Although I might have unfortunately broken the controller. I'm really sorry about that. I don't know whether it was me or whether it was broken beforehand, but I was playing a couple of Japanese indie games and suddenly the left stick of an Xbox controller just stopped functioning. It just got stuck on one side. I'm really sorry, but at least I could explain in Japanese that I broke the controller. <laughs> That's true progress. I also found an interesting way to engage with merchandise. Because you have to imagine that when you go to Gamescom as a journalist, you have all of these appointments with developers and with publishers to check out their games. And often at the end of these appointments, you get goodies. You get a t-shirt or a bag with all kinds of merchandise inside. A couple of years ago, I started to reject that merchandise because I don't really need it. It's like I'm not necessarily a fan of all of these games I'm checking out. And I'm certainly not going to run around Gamescom wearing a fan t-shirt of a game that I then might have to do an interview for or that I might have to report on. I'm not saying that I want to keep all bias out of there because everyone is uh, like a fan of certain games and franchises and series and so am I. I'm not trying to delude myself into believing I could be entirely objective, but I just don't want to run around with a logo of a game directly on my chest. Now, this time around, I took a little bit of a different approach though. Instead of rejecting the merch, I took it all. <laughs> I, I was really glad to receive all of the merchandise. I would then take it with me and on the last day of Gamescom, on the last day I was there, I went into the entertainment area where the public is, right? And 
I went up to people and I asked them whether they wanted it. I just gave it away because I think the merch belongs into the hands of those people that are proper fans of the games and not necessarily me as a journalist who is supposed to critically report on them. Now, as a conclusive statement here, my biggest highlight of Gamescom, if I can be very honest, is always meeting all kinds of cool people, getting to know new people, also meeting people that I know and have known for many years and just seeing them again. I noticed that it's so interesting. Whenever I go to Gamescom, there are lots of people who say, hey, let's meet up and that would be really cool. Yes, let's do that. And then it just doesn't happen because you're busy. You got a schedule. You got so many people around everywhere that it's really difficult. Sometimes you lose track of time or things get in the way. And I'm really sorry for anyone who I was not able to meet at Gamescom. But when I don't make these appointments and I just walk along the hallways in between the booths, I would so often just run into people I know and be super happy to meet up. And at the same time, as I said, it's so easy to make new acquaintances. Because while you're on this gigantic area that is Gamescom, wherever you are, you always know that there are people around you who are also involved with video games in one way or another. Some are fans of video games, some are developers, some work in marketing or PR, others are journalists. And of course, there are also lots and lots of academics, especially in the context of Gamescom Congress. And it's always so much fun because you can basically talk to anyone and you will most likely strike up an interesting conversation. You can really feel how that changes as soon as you leave the area, as you step on the train and you go back to your accommodation, for example, and you realize like, wow, there are so many strangers around me all of a sudden. It's a really interesting feeling when you're engaged in this kind of dynamic of being part of this Gamescom community for three days and then afterwards you kind of come back into real life just like you would, you know, drop out of a game and return back to your daily life. Well, those were my impressions and thoughts that I took away from this Gamescom. Please let me know what you think. Of course, if you were there, please share your impressions and your favorites and highlights with us. You can do that by going to studyingpixels.com contact. Thank you so very much for listening. If you want to support us, then join Studying Pixels Plus. We would really gladly appreciate your support. Follow us on whatever podcast app you desire. And we'll see each other again next week. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. 
Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.